We are continuing our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and in the second half of the letter, Paul is laying out what it looks like to um, live in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, verse 21. He's used this imagery in the text that we've looked at the last couple of Sundays. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have put off the old self. It's been crucified with Christ. That's not you any longer. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you have also put on the new self. You're wearing Jesus' identity as the perfect son. And therefore, when the Father looks at you, he sees you as he would see his perfect son with absolute approval, with pure delight and acceptance. And so Paul urges us from here on through the rest of the letter, be who you already are. Be who you already are. These instructions for holy living can't be separated from the source of holiness. And even as our sermon series begins to feel and sound very different because we're, we're looking at these specific details of real-life challenges one at a time, speaking truth last Sunday, dealing with anger this morning, even as it sounds and looks very different, we will constantly look back to this foundational piece of chapters 1 through 3, identity in Christ. Who are we as we trust in Christ and as the Father declares us to be? We're going to back up a few verses to uh, get a head start, starting in verse 22. Listen carefully. These are God's words. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore... Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. This is God's Word. Let's pray. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, speak a fresh word to each of us. Show us Christ, high and lifted up, risen, reigning, interceding for us even now, and make us more like him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We'll start with anger management. It's defined by the movie Adam Sandler starred in 15 years ago. Can't believe it's that old. Um, There's a scene in which Jack Nicholson's character, he's the court-assigned therapist to help Adam Sandler deal with his so-called anger issue. And um, Jack says to a group of guys gathered for therapy in his typical condescending, sneering, baiting voice in the movie, remember, Lou, temper's the one thing you can't get rid of by losing it. And then a fist fight ensues, I think, if I recall correctly. It's a hilarious movie about a serious topic It's the stuff of real therapy sessions. It's very often the straw that breaks the marriage's back. And so, is anger, these are popular conceptions out there, is anger like a bomb and you need to diffuse it before it blows? 
Or is anger more like overinflated tires? You just need to let out a little pressure every now and then in order to keep things moving along smoothly, not causing any problems. Or is anger like a a green stallion that hasn't been broken in. You need to harness that energy. You need to control it and, and shape it towards productive purposes. There's nothing wrong with it. You just need to channel it. Or is anger more like being true to yourself, this mantra that, that says you're just being real. There's nothing wrong with that. You, you have every right to express your honest opinion, and if it comes out like that, so be it. What gets you angry? A fairly new addition to all of our vocabularies in the last couple of years is a word that needs no explanation, hangry. We all get what that means. Now you're thinking, preacher, you're on the clock. I didn't have breakfast this morning. You don't want to see me with low blood sugar. Repent. Uh, the end of all things is near. If we go deeper, anger often comes about in the face of some kind of injustice, doesn't it? Anger is emotional opposition to something that really matters to you but has gone wrong. And it could be as simple as someone cutting in line in front of you at the grocery store. What's so important to you that everyone behave, that you get through in um, as fast as you possibly can, and that sets you off? It could be as simple as your kid not getting invited to a birthday party or being left on the bench in a blowout win and something so important to you has gone wrong, and you get angry. Anger comes out when someone cuts you off and almost causes an accident. You get angry when your friend or your spouse makes a very simple comment that you take to be dismissive and demeaning, and anger comes, blows. Are you often irritable? Are you easily upset? Are you bitter and resentful at past wrongs that you cannot get over? They keep coming to mind. They keep causing this visceral reaction. Your blood pressure goes up. Do you hit, yell, and throw? Or do you simmer silently, passively? Our prayer of confession put it well. Do you murder people in your mind and nobody would ever know because you're such a nice guy? Here's a different angle on anger. Do you fail to demonstrate anger at some wrongs? Do you turn a blind eye to realities that are maybe not that obvious in your life, in your sphere, like poverty, like child trafficking, like domestic violence? Is the lack of anger in you about those realities just as sinful as when you blow your top, when you yell at your kids, when you loudly and, and emotionally criticize those people for acting like that? And maybe that question helps us to begin to understand that there is a good and proper and healthy anger an anger that's appropriate in the face of a wrong, in the, in, in the face of an injustice, something that's not the way it's supposed to be. Every single one of us knows anger. We get it. Because we either are or have been angry, and very often we've also been on the receiving end of someone else's anger. 
We know anger experientially, and we associate it with dysfunction and pain and conflict and relational breakdown, but we can't know anger really, fully, accurately, until and unless we know how anger relates to God. Without that perspective, we'll miss something at the heart of who God is and how He saves sinners. So secondly, we'll ask this question, an angry God? There's a popular sense uh, that the, the Bible's breaking up into two parts, and the Old Testament describes God as a God of anger or wrath, and the popular sense is that the New Testament, in contrast, describes God as an anger of love. We all prefer the, the love guy versus the anger guy. That's the popular conception. David Pallison is a biblical counselor and author reading his own Bible, and he found that 95% of the pages of the Old Testament have a reference to someone's anger, God's anger, humanity's anger, the devil's anger, 95%. That pretty much fits the popular conception, and, and maybe it's more than any of us would expect, 95% of the pages of the Old Testament. But then David Pallison turned to the New Testament, and he found that 99% of its pages have a direct reference to anger. Now, it's not a scholarly analysis. There's, there aren't scientific means he went about, but there's no denying that anger shows up throughout the Bible from beginning to end. Now, some people would say, see, if there's any truth to that, that's why I want nothing to do with Christianity. I don't need to read an ancient text describing an angry God. I have enough of that kind of stuff all around me. I, I need love. I need affirmation. I need beauty. What I'd say is, plead with you is, stay with me for just a little while longer because I need to show you how anger is, has a healthy, good, righteous impact that you and I cannot live without. If we turn back to the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible, when the Lord reveals himself to Moses, this is how he describes himself. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, this is the personal name of God, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Right here is a defining moment in all of history. Why do I say that? It's astounding because the Lord had just redeemed Israel out of 400 plus years of slavery in Egypt. The Lord had miraculously brought them out through the, the, the Red Sea. The Lord had miraculously fed them and watered hundreds of thousands of people in the middle of the desert. The Lord had just given through Moses his gracious, life-giving law. And meanwhile, the Israelites, who were so impatient for Moses to come back down the mountain, were throwing an awesome pagan party, worshiping false gods, saying that these things they had crafted in the fire from their trinkets melted down had actually saved them from slavery in Egypt. And yet... When God reveals his character to Moses, he uses this description of himself, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He had every 
right, just, righteous right to bring judgment upon His sinful people. There would be nothing wrong with it. There would be nothing improper or sinful or unfair. This is strong opposition we're talking about towards what's wrong, towards what should not be. And here's where we need to be careful not to inject our own sinful, prideful elements into this picture of God's pure and righteous wrath. When we think of anger, we think bad. Get rid of it. This is a picture of righteous, just, as it should be, anger. Because God is perfect and sinless in every, every way, but instead of what should be, punishment of sinners who have rejected everything good that He's just provided to them. Instead, this verse points to something at the core of His character, describing Himself as slow to anger. That is startling. It's life-giving. It's merciful. It's the essence of God's love that He is slow to anger, slow to do what He has every right to do, punish sinners. So, God's just and righteous anger withheld from His people and redirected towards another. Hold that mental page with your finger. That's a reality we can't live without. Early on in Jesus' ministry, the disciples of John the Baptist see this new guy as competition, and they complain to John the Baptist about Jesus, but John sets them straight by explaining, no, 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 I'm just the messenger. That's the Messiah. And he, he makes this statement to close, crystal clear, John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Why? For God's wrath remains on them. The, the assumption is that sinners deserve God's wrath. God's wrath remains on them. If you believe in the Son, the, the wrath of God is removed from them. That's the implication of what John the Baptist is saying about Jesus. And here in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul has already said pretty much the same thing. Chapter 2, he says to the Ephesians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then uh, over, down in verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but God. We say those are gospel words. Why? Because everything changes. We were deserving of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. The heart of salvation is the issue of anger, which is withheld from sinners through faith in Jesus and redirected upon the Son. For some of you, any reference to anger is a powerful turnoff, and it makes sense. It might be because you've experienced emotional or verbal or even physical abuse, and there is no justifying of that, and there's no minimizing of the pain and turmoil that has caused and maybe is still causing in your life today. It's horrible. 
sinful anger at its worst. Some of us know that all too personally. But still, I would say this, none of us actually wants to eliminate anger from our lives. None of us actually wants to eliminate a righteous response to what is wrong, criminal, unjust, abusive. Why do I say that? Each of us has been created in the image of God, Genesis 1, to reflect something of His glory, to reflect aspects of His character. And how did God make us in His image? He made us as moral creatures, able to have a sense of good and evil, right and wrong. And so, reflecting that image of God universally as humans, we all want that child abuser to get caught and locked up. We all want that murderer to be sent away for life, so we can't do that to anyone else. We, we want the, the loser who cut us off to be pulled over by the cop down the road and ticketed for reckless driving. Can't say I've ever had that fantasy more than twice in one day. That's a universal desire for justice. There's, there's something proper and good about that opposition to what is not right. We call that anger. The problem comes when pride and self-righteousness enter the picture and distort and corrupt something that is right, opposition to the wrong, and make it something else, make it destructive. The problem is when my will be done is life's rallying cry rather than, I don't like this, but thy will be done, Lord. The problem is when we return evil for evil, when we need to get our own righteous, our, our unrighteous vengeance, when insecurity causes rightful opposition to become a monster in sinful anger. All of that corrupts what is good and right about righteous anger against what is wrong and what is wrong with us and what is wrong with our world. It is very simple. It's our sin. Every one of us. That's what's wrong with this world. It's our sin. It's our rebellion against the Creator. It's, it's our treating things and people as more worthy of our time and attention and love than God Himself. That's false worship. That's putting things in the place of God. But here's the problem. If God is a just God, He must do what's right. No less than a good judge must do what's right in county court, which is take the evidence Compare it to the law, lock up the guilty person and not let the innocent, uh, not let the guilty go free. If God's a good judge, all the more so, his justice must mean wrong has to be punished. Righteous wrath has to be poured out in response to sin. So the only way he can maintain his justice, his integrity, while being slow to anger and abounding in love, Exodus 34, is to redirect his just anger from sinners who believe in his son Jesus and place it upon that perfect son Jesus himself. At the heart of salvation is anger. 
What does salvation mean? Anger withheld from me, I deserve it. And anger redirected upon the Son, who is the perfect substitute sacrifice. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in Christ, we have redemption. How? Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Anger led to cross, led to death. Do you believe this? Do you see that your sinful heart deserves God's righteous anger? Do you see and trust that Jesus died on the cross in your place to receive that anger, dying the death you deserve to die, and rising to newness of life for you? Salvation is secured. Forgiveness is made reality when the Father's just and righteous anger is aimed at Jesus instead of you. Lastly, how do we redeem anger? All that brings us back to verse 26. Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. In the original Greek uh, that the New Testament was written in, the first word is actually in the imperative mood. We, we use that to describe commands. Do this. Go there. And in the original Greek, verse 20, uh, 26 says this, literally, be angry and do not sin. That's striking, isn't it? Um, each sense, each translation it, it is accurate and helps us understand something of what Paul is saying here. First, um, in your anger, do not sin. When you get angry, don't inject all of this messy stuff that comes out of self-righteousness. Don't do that. When you get angry, don't sin. And secondly, Paul is saying, be angry and don't sin. Cultivate a God-imitating attitude towards everything that is wrong. Be offended. Be bothered. Realize things are not the way they're supposed to be according to God's perfect design. See the world and see yourself as God sees it and you and react as he does. Yes, with righteous anger. We can see this throughout Jesus' ministry. Uh, in, in Mark chapter 3, when religious le- leaders are waiting to pounce on Jesus, looking to see if he's going to dare to heal someone crippled on the Sabbath... Here's Jesus' response. Jesus looked around at them in anger. Why? Because they had it backwards. Healing was this foretaste of God making all things new. Healing was a a glimpse of salvation. This is wrong. I'm going to make it right. And the Pharisees are looking to catch him? When you call something evil, uh, when you call something good, evil... The right response is righteous anger, just as Jesus did. When Jesus' close friend Lazarus died, he got angry. The English translations don't get at this. Uh, I'm not saying anger would be the best translation, but, but the emotion that he was experiencing was anger. John eleven thirty three. when Jesus saw her weeping, one of Lazarus' sisters, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. That word has a sense of, this is not right. 
He was upset. He was angry at death because he saw very tangibly, emotionally, right in front of him what death had done to those he loved. This was not the way it was supposed to be. This was not the way God had created creation perfectly to thrive. And Jesus got upset. Maybe the best picture of an angry Jesus is when he cleared the temple courts, made a whip, starts causing a ruckus, overturns tables, monies everywhere at the temple because, what, a house of worship and prayer had become a place for loan sharks and um, profiteers to take advantage of the people. Something beautiful had become completely corrupted. Something life-giving had become draining. Jesus got angry. It was the appropriate reaction. It was righteous, and his disciples remember that it is written, Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. Ah, here's the lesson for us. When we wonder, how in the world can anger be good in my life? How in the world can that person's be uh, anger uh, turn good towards me? And this is the lesson. Zeal for your house will consume me, the disciples realized. Right anger comes when you are shaped by God's righteousness. Wrong, sinful anger comes when you are shaped by self-righteousness. Healthy, righteous anger protects the glory of God and everything beautiful and pure and lovely and affirming and life-giving that flows out of the heart of God. But wrong, sinful anger protects the glory of self. It tears others down in order to make self look better. It fights and claws for status and affirmation because, and it has to build one's own identity because it does not trust that the identity that Christ has earned and offers for you to put on by faith is good enough. In your anger, do not sin. The solution cannot be try harder not to do that. I don't know about you, I've tried, that's not possible. It doesn't work. The solution requires heart transformation. The solution requires starting with an understanding that anger arises when self's throne is threatened. When somebody dares to say something or imply or treat you in a way that disrespects the fact that you're sovereign, you're in charge, you know best, you'll decide for yourself. That's that's self-righteousness. You need to understand first and foremost that self does not belong on any throne. The only way to redeem anger is to bow your knee in perfect humility. Paul started chapter 4. Be completely humble and gentle. With all humility, literally, you bow your knee before the real King Jesus. You believe that God's righteous anger towards your sin, appropriate in every way, was instead poured out upon Jesus. And then you trust in Christ who provides all that you need, who makes you all that you long to be, and anger begins to lose its power. This is why Paul adds in verse 27, 
do not give the devil a foothold. Why? Because sinful anger, he's talking about relationships within the community of faith. Sinful anger gives the devil an opening. It, it gives him a little crack in which to get his destructive crowbar in to separate what is united in Christ. The devil wants you to forget that there's something good about anger. That God's righteous anger was directed on the Son so that you, through faith in Him, might have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1.3. Put off the old, put on the new, for you were created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Lord, we confess anger that is destructive, selfish, It does not reflect what is good about your character. It plays into the hands of the devil. Show us, Lord, the sin, the depth of it. More clearly, more obviously, more powerfully, show us Christ who received every ounce of your righteous anger, your just wrath that we may never have to because we trust in him. Amen. I have a question as our team is getting ready for this song of response. Is anger a problem in your life? It needs to come out into the light where, yes, it can be exposed, but where it can be healed. Anger is a very accurate indicator of heart issues. And here's the diagnostic test. Do you trust in Christ's perfect life and substitute death for your righteousness, which then gives you perfect identity, highest status, never-ending love? Or do you feel the need to fight for your own, which cultivates an angry person? Whether you need to trust in Christ by faith for the very first time or whether you profess Christ already and you need to re-examine your heart, use this next song as a prayer. Lord, I need you. You are my one defense, my righteousness, O oh God, how I need you. And then come talk to somebody. Steve and another leader will be right up front after the service to pray with you. I'll be out in the the fellowship hall. We can set up another time to talk confidentially. You can grab someone you know to be a maturing follower of Christ. We would love to have the privilege of pointing you to the Savior and setting you on a path of healing. Amen.